It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. This week I speak with Sean Anglum. Sean is the pastor of First Grace United Methodist Church in New Orleans, Louisiana. First Grace has one of the most fascinating birth stories of any church I have ever heard of. It was formed, born in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina as the merger of an African-American congregation and a white church that were located just a mile away from one another. Both churches took a hard and heavy blow from the storm, and both were in a period of decline before the storm even began. So Sean came and was asked by his bishop to merge these two congregations and spoke with their own leaders and made that merger happen. It's a beautiful story of new life out of death. The work that they're doing down in New Orleans to this day is absolutely remarkable. Here he is, Pastor Sean Anglum. How many Easter's have you spent at First Grace? I arrived in June of 2006, which was a year after the storm, eight, ten months after the storm. Uh, so nine. Nine. And has the church but, been First Grace for all that time, or were you initially called to one of the predecessor congregations? It, it's been First Grace for eight years and um, eight and a half years. Um, and what our bishop did after the storm was, uh, you know, there was, of course, devastation everywhere. And the, the church that is now First Grace had about five to eight feet of water in it, you know, depending on what section of the church. And the, the, um, the Grace uh, Church, which is one mile from here, did not have water damage, but a back wall in the sanctuary was knocked in. Uh, so the bishop took uh, these churches. He created something he called mission zones. And I was the lead pastor for eight Methodist churches. Six of them were historic black, historical black congregations. Um, St. Mark's was the, the, the reconciling congregation in the quarter Um and uh, and then First Methodist, which was a, a very large edifice, uh, you know, classic First Methodist uh, sort of downtown church. Um, but all of the congregations had been in significant decline prior to the storm. And the storm, of course, just did uh, even more um, uh, damage. So you to were the- assigned responsibility for all eight of those congregations? I was. I had uh, three part-time pastors who were working with me. How did you feel about being sent right after the hurricane to New Orleans? Was that something that you were desiring? It, it was. I, um, uh, I'm from Ohio. Uh, my wife is from Indiana. We met in graduate school at Harvard Divinity School. And she uh, she had gone to Tulane as an undergrad. All she wanted to do was move back to New Orleans. So I had lived here in the 90s, fell in love with the city like my my wife, who's an academic and, uh, you know, writes about, uh, does theology and writes about New Orleans. Um, and so we had always wanted to come back here. I was frightened to death to go to Baton Rouge when they sent me there. The only thing I knew about Louisiana was New Orleans. Mm. Uh, it turned out to be a wonderful six years uh, but the bishop knew that I had an interest here, and even though there was a lot of fear and trepidation in coming here, I did want to come here, and um, 
and I'm, I didn't ask to come here, but he did call and, and ask me to you know take this role. And it sounds like you had a fairly unorthodox resume in terms of you weren't serving some tall steeple church in the suburbs somewhere. You were doing campus ministry. You were doing work that maybe prepared you for or lent itself to the kinds of challenges that you were, that you faced. I was assigned to Washington Square United Methodist Church in Greenwich Village as a student pastor, which is a which changed my life. And the pastor there, Skylar Rhodes, uh, it just had a wonderful ministry. It was a small church. I remember he put on the form, this is an in-the-gutter church. If you don't want to get your hands dirty, don't come here. Mm. And I thought, I don't know that I do want to get my hands that dirty. Uh, but that church completely uh, transformed me and my understanding of parish life. How so? What what happened to you there? Um it, it was a small congregation. It was one of those, you know, what I would call at the time a hugging church, which made me very uncomfortable. You walk in the door and everybody's hugging everybody and calling the pastor by his first name or calling him Pastor Schuyler. And, but they were for real. They were doing real ministry. There was a meal ministry. They were a prophetic church. They were a reconciling church, which in Methodism means if you're gay, it's okay. Uh, there were real people terribly flawed, changing their own lives and the, the lives of people who walked through the door. Uh, I was there for three years. Um, they did a worship service where they had communion every Sunday, which for me, uh, coming from my Catholic background, I often felt like I would go to a Protestant church and, you know, we would leave in an hour. And I was like, what was that? Then, you know, we didn't kneel. We didn't cross ourselves. We didn't have communion. Um, and so Schuyler had sort of this, you know, I think, uh, what Leonard Sweet would call an ancient future thing going on. Mm. And um, there was a true joy about being in worship uh, that had a liturgy, but was also loose. Um, and so that experience just became, you know, seminal to my, my ministry. So you learned how, you learned how, what, or at least you learned what a joyful church can look like. You know, like many students and young people, I, you know, I came to fix the church and with all of its problems. And, um, and he never gave me a hard time about that. I think he just trusted himself as a pastor and he trusted his people and you know, what uh, a church can do for people, uh, what, you know, the way it will open your heart uh, to the, to, uh, you know, to the gospel, to the healing power of it. And um, uh, that was the, you know, part of the joy of that place was people uh, really engaged in their in real life of being the church. One of the things I'm curious about in church life in general is the manner in which a church's personality seems set and is very hard to change. So if you've got mm -hmm. a church that is depressive, if you have a church that is joyful, if you have a church that's you know, wide open and welcoming and the boundaries are low or a mm -hmm. church that has high boundaries. These, these things, even though a new minister or even a congregational like like board or something may want to affect identity change, it's hard mm. to do. And new people come in and sort of get grafted onto the congregation's personality. So in forming this new church, merging these two congregations with your experience of the kind of church that you 
want to be in and, and felt joy mm-hmm. in. Were you able to sort of from the ground up say, look, this is what I've seen and I want to inculcate this kind of identity in the new thing that we're doing? Was that a self-conscious process for you? I, w- I want to make two comments. When I when I left Washington Square and I went to University Methodist Church, what you just described you know, I really felt for the first time, I felt like, wow, there's two spirits operating here. It's the strong tradition of University Methodist Church, which really blessed me. And then there is experience that I'm bringing to it. And I said, you you know, to myself, like, you can't do battle. That's not what you need. To, you need to allow the church to affect you just as Washington Square affected me. And I need to be able to affect the church. And you have, you know, uh, really open the, yourself to the spirit, allowing that dance, you know, to happen. What, where I've been very fortunate, Matt, when I was at Washington Square, I started a, an evening worship service there, which was like a Vespers kind of service. When I came to LSU, there was no um, chapel service for students. So I initiated a new chapel service and, you know, was able to be very creative in the shaping of that. There's nothing unusual about it, uh, but there is a there is a feeling about it. And then when I came to New Orleans, there's been a hurricane here. So when we started worshiping at First Methodist, uh, there was no heat. There was no electricity. Uh, there was a gutted, gigantic sanctuary uh, that, you know, some told me it could seat 500. Some said it could seat 700 prior to the storm. But now there's there's no pews. There's just a big, huge cement slab of a floor. Uh, and there's no choir loft. There's there's none of that. So, you know, I knew the first worship service I would do here, I would be putting something in place. And, you know, just you, you, the way I feel and what's happened to me in ministry is I've been given moments and I've I've been able to honor that and recognize that this is really a moment, just as you described it. I'm about to do something we're going to have the first worship service in this building in a year. We did it on the anniversary of Katrina. Um, And so what I did was um, I, first of all, I went out and got a young man who was, who was African American who played gospel music in another church in an earlier worship service. And I had met him through these eight churches. And so I brought him, he was going to be the sound of music. And we were going to sing these traditional hymns, but we were also going to do something that sounded different uh, and that was going to have a gospel feel to it. Um, So I knew that. How did the congregation respond to that? Were they excited about it? Were they? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the integration that happened between first Methodist and grace really in some ways was prefigured by some of the work you were doing musically? Um, that's right. It set a tone for it. That's right. It set, it set uh, you know, I was opening the space. The other thing I would say, when we talk about First Methodist, um, there were about 17 people um, and very faithful people, and that needs to be reiterated. Most of them are deceased now. Uh, my first meeting with the leadership of First Methodist included a, a 95-year-old man, uh, God rest his soul, a 91-year-old woman, God rest her soul, uh, a 79-year-old woman, 
um, and who's in a nursing home and um, uh, a 60 year old man who hadn't been to church in 40 years, but he had grown up here and God rest his soul. He is now deceased. This was the leadership wow. of, of the church. And so um, did they have was, a sense of like, it's all up. I mean, especially after the storm of it's all up in the air, like, we're either going to have some radical change happen or the place is going to have to be closed or did they have their hands on the, the reins tightly? How much, how much sense of sort of like, this is how we've always done it. Was there when you first got there? First of all, there was, there wasn't a door on the sanctuary. So the building was boarded up, like not obliterated, but gutted. That's right. The first floor had no functioning doors. There was a plywood, with a chain link around it and a padlock. I mean, that's how you got in the, the door when I arrived here. So had they given up? Had they, was there a sense of resilience? The city was devastated. And so um, they came in and took charge. They, they sued their insurance company. They got a big settlement. By the time I got here, they had taken their insurance money and they were re re doing their building. Not, they didn't have the money to redo what was here, but they had, they were putting, redoing the electrical, putting the building back in place. So was there a sense amongst these 17 senior citizens that we're, you know, we're going to restore this building in as much as we can to a function that we don't need anymore? Like, you know, we're going to, with 17 people, we're going to make seats for 400 people? Or was there a, a sense of, we're going to have to redefine ourselves. I guess behind these questions, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about the beauty of the saints of the church who dig themselves in and will not be shaken and, and how sometimes that can be such a blessing and also it can be a hindrance too. Um, and that's, and that's exactly what it was. And, and, and really they, they did have a, a Camelot kind of vision of things that, they, even though their congregation was worshiping 35 to 50 people on Sunday prior to the storm, uh, uh, even though that was their reality, they paid the bills with a charter school that was in the building. They had a pretty much a Camelot vision that if they got the right uh, preacher, uh, they were going to you know, fill up the place with... Uh, with middle-class white people. That was going to be 1957 all over again? Absolutely. So they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. You're kind of getting things relaunched at First Methodist. When you did this, did you feel like you were making... It's interesting because it's a very visionary move that you made to integrate a white and a black church. It never, that never happens. Right. Um, I mean, especially first Methodist and grace, which is in, uh, a fairly impoverished part of the city. And at the same time, there's a pragmatism to what you're doing too, right? It's it kind of makes sense. You've got two partially ruined buildings, two declining congregations, both in the middle of probably the biggest period of change that they'd ever had in their own histories. Um, so on the, it's interesting. On the one hand, what you're describing feels like a bold thing and a risk, and I'm sure it was both. And on the other hand, it also feels like a bit of a no-brainer. That's right. That's exactly right. And, the, and I think, the, you know, for me, that 
the re, the question that helped was, this is about our city. It's not just about our survival. Of course, it's about our survival, but it's about what is the church going to be? What is what is what is the opportunity that God is opening up after the storm? The storm has happened. It's devastated us. Are we just putting things back together the way they were? Which is what most place places did. It's very tempting to do that. You know, you can look behind you and see very clearly what you want in front of you, or you can look in front of you and say, "This is the dream," and we're going to walk out of Egypt. But of course, you know, the moment you walk out of Egypt, the euphoria of that turns into, why did you bring us out here to die? Uh, you know, there's uh, adventures are wonderful, but there's a lot of uh, mountaintop views and a lot of uh, valleys of death, you know, as you move through those early days. In my experience here in Chicago, white liberal churches want, are, are, are eager to try to partner with African American churches, and there's a way in which, in the in the in the the current moment, we need to right out of our own guilt, out of our own like longing for reparation. Like we have, we we need to be unburdened of these things. We want to have black church friends, um, and the African American church really here in the city, at least, doesn't. You know, I mean, out of out of their love and denominational ties and, and commitments will definitely partner, but they don't need us. Um, oftentimes, there's a sort of patronizing financial dimension to it also. But mm-hmm. did you find as you were merging these two churches where the was, was one of these congregations, did that dynamic that I'm describing come into play? Was one church more eager for it and more maybe more idealistic about it? Um how does that look? The, look, you know that you're, you're, of course, you're right on, and um, uh, that's why the, even asking the question is dangerous because the the answer is an obvious yes, I think. But there's so many reasons that um, historical black churches shouldn't trust the white church, um, especially when they have several hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Uh, so you know, all of that history is going on. What we had and the blessing was by the time I we got to that question, we basically had three congregations. We had the Grace Congregation. We had the remnant of First Methodist. And we had about 15 to 20 new people who had joined uh, First Methodist. And because of the young people uh, that we had in the building, young people attract young people, young people had poured into the church. There was a, a, a good percentage of that. 15 to 20 were, were younger people. And then they were, there was also a mixed group of people. So that, you know, group that poured into the city, they were looking for adventure and, and newness. Uh, so the, the, the first Methodist members were, I would say, as um, concerned about the merge as the, the Grace members were. And they, they, you know, they didn't, they, they, they weren't a liberal white, white church. Let me put it to you that way. Mm. They were a first Methodist denomination, if anything, more on the conservative side of things. Um, so, uh, I think everybody was excited and everybody was anxious, um, you know, in the process. How did, 
your preaching change when you went from preaching in a university setting to preaching to a declining tall steeple congregation to suddenly being in the midst of this new environment that was a combination of probably aspects of both of those things, also a vibrant African-American congregation in the midst and a bunch of young people. Did, did your, did you like self-consciously think, all right, I used to be this kind of preacher. Now I have to be that kind of preacher. I, I had very little training as a preacher. And so, uh, which I, I think is, is a unfortunate aspect of, of liberal white seminaries, uh, that don't emphasize it the way that, uh, black seminaries do. Um, you know, I just notice. I, I, my sense is that the black preachers I know, they can name a line of black preachers that they know, that they watch, that they've seen, uh, and that they have a deep appreciation for. And I don't find that so much in uh, the, uh, with white preachers. Um, but uh, so, you know, I went from University Methodist uh, to basically a gutted sanctuary. And uh, uh, I didn't know what I was preaching or how to preach. I had a music stand. I went from a pulpit, you know, where they dimmed the lights to a music stand with no sound, you know, and uh, who's going to show up today. And I think I pretty much preached that way. When we, by the time we merged, then there was, there was uh, more of a direction, I think, to uh, the preaching moment and, and uh, a quick and steep learning curve that I very much enjoyed, um, but that also was, you know, just uh, a, a process of how do you connect to people? How do you, you know, connect in this moment? How did you figure that out? I don't think I figured it out very well at first. Um, we had... We had incredible moments of worship, and we had incredible moments of despair. And when you have these moments, everybody wants to go back to Egypt. Everybody, everybody wants to say, well, the reason this isn't working because this is how you do that. And that's not working because this is how you do that. And that's how we used and, to do it back home. And you have to keep walking towards the promised land and trust, you know, uh, this moment that you've been given, which is you are figuring out a new culture, a new language, a new way to preach, a new way to do worship that uh, that opens up to this new body that you have in front of you of, you know, Jews and Gentiles and everybody else. And it took us about four or five months. And then it started. It, worship became very powerful. This is an impolitic question, but did you feel as a white person like all of a sudden tempted to try to preach black? Um, no, but I was aware of that. I feel like as a preacher, I've always been, what, looking back now, I've always been a mutt, you know, meaning I grew up with preachers doing homilies, which were 10-minute, you know, stories basically as, as a Catholic, to um, a white preacher in New York City, Skylar Rhodes, who often preached with a, a black style, and he was good at it, um, then to University Methodist. And I always did interesting things in preaching. I often sing. I often do some kind of refrain of something. I've just, I've always done that. So you sing in the pulpit? 
Yes. I noticed in your Easter sermon um, that you, I, you sent me the text to uh, that there were song lyrics from from Aretha Franklin, from uh, who else was in there? Um, Curtis Mayfield. Yeah, Curtis Mayfield. Were you, I, I was curious, were you singing Mavis Staples? Did, Absolutely. You, so you're breaking out in song. Oh, that's exciting. You know, and and I can, I mean, that R&B is, is just natural for me to do that. When you sing in the uh, pulpit, is, is, is there a musical accompaniment? Oh, this, they often just jump in. They don't know I'm going to do it. They just, and I don't know that I'm going to do it. But it was, you know, Easter happened to be a rainy day. And um, that morning, that just came to me that I'm, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing this. And if you look at the words, you know, it's about, you know, you took my soul from the lost and found. And, and uh, you know, and I'm looking to the heavens when I'm singing that. Yeah. Uh, uh, joyful, it's fun, and it's theological. It's interesting. One of the things I've learned um, over the course of these interviews is how many preachers are triggered by, rely on, look to song lyrics. It's a real common denominator. Of, mm. uh, um, so, so your so your your style. You describe yourself as a as a mutt in the pulpit. It's evolving, certainly, but sounds like it kind of always has been evolving that you didn't come into first grace thinking this is how Sean Anglin preaches a sermon and, you know, come hell or high water. It's how I'm going to continue to preach a sermon. Mm -hmm. Right. When, when I got to new Orleans, there, there was no pulpit to preach from. I mean, there wasn't some place in the sanctuary that you went to, to preach a sermon. There was a slab of concrete uh, the the you know the, the the chancel choir loft and the in the preaching spot wasn't even put in place until uh, after first grace became first grace. I mean there was there was there was a I got a uh, I had the custodian build a, a I'm like five seven and a half. So first of all you got to be able to see me. So I had him build a block about eight inches high, and I put that behind the pulpit. You know, and we were all on the ground floor. There, there was no place to be. Mm. <laughs> and so I, I think, you know, all of that plays into it. I often feel like it's only been in the last three or four years that I have found my my footing in, in it um, and uh, uh, and have also been more serious about it. As I, I think I didn't we were so busy here. There's so much life here. You know, we have a residence for homeless women and children at First Grace. We have a legal clinic for Latino children. We have Tuesday and Thursday night. There's about 100 uh, Spanish speakers trying to learn English. The Congress of Day Laborers, which is a day, uh, day laboring group for Spanish speakers, is about 350. They meet here on Wednesday. We've, we've just been very busy. And uh, worship has always been creative, but I don't think I... I got serious uh, uh, enough about my preaching until about four or five years ago. Part of that for me was I bring preachers in here. This is a diverse congregation. People need to see that I, I believe that and I walk the talk. And so I have always been able to find a good black preacher that I can bring in on Sunday about once a month. And, and that has really affected me. It certainly sounds like you're doing a ton of social service and all sorts of active ministry. How have you, beyond those things, not to minimize them, but is there a symbolic way in which First Grace is benefiting New Orleans? Yeah, I think the short answer is yes. 
And the reality is on any given Sunday, there is there's at least, I'd say, three to six people from out of town who have come here because someone said, you've got to go to this church when you go to New Orleans. It's a very powerful worship experience because of the diversity, because of the joy that's in the room, the acceptance, uh, the choir sing 20 uh, plus uh, members of a gospel choir, young and old, black and white, uh, uh, sing, and then a white preacher uh, get up and, and seeing, you know, 35 to 45, we have a boatload of children under the age of 12, seeing them come up, this diverse group of children come up. It, it's just overwhelming oh, I yeah. think, for, for people to see it. There's unique story upon unique story in the life of your congregation. It's not every campus minister who's going to leave that position and go to a church and happens to bring along four students who move into the sanctuary. What, mm-hmm. What did that look like? And did the students come in order to like, explicitly serve the city? Was that the idea? They, they lived on the second floor. And the second, you know, this is a, a huge edifice, as I've mentioned. And, and so we, they lived in the old Sunday school classes. Um, what I told them is I said, uh, they're coming here. As a, I, I got this uh, through this act of good luck, um, these grants for AmeriCorps. People. So they were paid. And uh, I said, I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to serve the church. Uh, you're going to serve this city. Uh, we're we're going to figure it out as we go. And then we are going to trust that the spirit is going to open up what it is you're being called here to do. And that's exactly what happened. A year later, uh, the city called me and, and uh, I had made some contacts there and they said, we are trying to find places for the, you know, innumerable homeless to live. And um, I said, I went to the church council and I went to these the four young people living here. And I said, create a model uh, for us to take in a group and we think we can handle. And they created a ministry we called we call Hagar's House and actually own a house right next to the church where um, four unaccompanied women and three women with children live. Uh, it's a beautiful home, and it is well-known in the city as, uh, again, a very joyful, uh, powerful community of women connected to First Grace. And are they are the folks who live there formerly homeless? Are they moving out of some situation that causes them to need to be there, or is, it, is that its own intentional community? Uh, it's... It's it's both of those things. So it's women who are homeless or transitioning sometimes from a rehab center, uh, and they they can live there. You know, um, one of our unique unique things about Hagar's house is we put no time frame on how long a woman can live there, and that's that's very powerful in their life because what we're saying to them is, you live with us now. This is where you live. And you will live here as long as you need to live here. Mm. And so women can take a breath. And it's not like I need to anxiously run and go do something. So have you brought in more students to run these programs as time has gone by? Or are those original? So actually, one of the young women who started the program, who was a former student and had gone off and came back uh, the year after, the year we became First Grace, she still runs uh, Hagar's house. 
but I've, we've brought, we bring in AmeriCorps workers, we bring in volunteers. We have a couple permanent staff people that have developed, most of them people who lived here in the church who have developed it now into uh, these, you know, we have three full-time staff people. It sounds to me like your administrative load as the senior pastor or the lead pastor in the mix here, does it ever prove overwhelming in terms of the allocation of energy you've got to devote to worship when you're doing all the programming that you're doing? Uh, I think it's, as you know, it's just a good battle. And if you don't know you're in the battle, you'll lose it. So you just have to decide what's going to get done and what's not going to get done. And I think for me, it's made me with my preaching to get more regimented about it. Uh, and I've also, you know, there's, we've had some change in staff and I have a music, you know, I have scheduled meetings that I have with people that where we plan the worship experience. So you can't be as, at least administratively, as impromptu as you once were, or maybe temperamentally you want to be. I I noticed um, that you had said to me that on Sunday evening, you turned to the passage for the next week, which I was impressed with. It made me think, I ought to start doing that. I mean, typically Sunday evening, I try to be pretty empty-headed. But you're... That's an an attempt... uh, uh, to forget, uh, to let Sunday go. So by it's looking good. to the next week's lectionary passage, you're not so much diving into the next week, but shedding yourself from the experience that's just happened that day. That's right. I stop analyzing it and, and receive it as a blessing. That's one great. Of, I, you know, one of the it, things it, I've found as a preacher over the years is my my mood on a Sunday, which I then, of course, carry into Monday can be overly determined by the success or lack thereof of whatever happened on a Sunday morning. So that, that's a neat discipline. And I've lived, you know, and I still, I still live through that. uh, But that uh, the 12 steps have been very powerful to me in the past three years. And it's really become my spiritual discipline. I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic or or, or an addict in recovery, but there is, there is a, a deep, spiritual clarity to the 12 steps that has made me much more self-aware, gives you concrete tools to work with, daily faith in God really looks like and how you live that in your relationships uh, and gives you, you know, community to work it out with as well. Um, So I think it's, you know, I think my preaching has become much, much more um, disciplined and it needed to. Sean, I don't want to keep you tied up for too long here, but the work that you're doing and the ministry that you have, um, I mean, you sound absolutely energized by it. It also sounds overwhelming and like just amazing blessing. Yeah, it's, it's, I've been really, um, uh, I've been really fortunate when I, when I, when I look back, uh, one of the, ways that I've just been so blessed is the people. I often tell people the most interesting thing about me is the people I hang out with. It's the congregation that I spend time with. And they, uh, you know, the Angela Davis, who runs Hagar's house, and while she was doing that, went back to school and got her law degree so we could open this clinic for Latino children. She's been here since the beginning. And she's a very, she has no idea how good she is uh, because she created everything that's around her. And uh, because of her, you know, we have these ministries. Our administrator, Stephanie Martin, who I knew was 
going to be the administrator of this church. I needed her. I needed her for two years. We finally were air her. She can run the facility. Our uh, one full-time uh, custodial maintenance person. Uh, uh, we, he, we, he finally just transitioned to doing his own work, but the man we've brought in is just fantastic. I've been very blessed with really capable uh, people. One of the things uh, that you said to me in an email that I found very moving is I had asked you the question, who do you turn to for inspiration in the pulpit? And behind that question, there's the assumption that the answer is going to be, you know, Karl Barth or Frederick Beekner or whomever. And your answer was my, my parishioners. Um, and you said, and I'm not, I'm not sure if you were quoting someone or not. Uh, if, if you're not spending six days a week with the members of your church, you don't have the right to get up and preach to them on the seventh. Yes. That, uh, was one that was said to me, um, uh, uh, by a professor who was quoting um, Howard Thurman, I believe. And Howard Thurman, I think I misquoted him. Unless you spent six, uh, six days, uh, the, uh, unless you've sent, spent the previous six days with your congregation, you don't have a right to preach to, the, to them on Sunday. The reality of what you're living is something I think anyone who listens to the story is going to be moved by. And this is beautiful thing. And the way you tell the story, you keep yourself in the wings, which is very admirable and honorable. But your congregation is blessed to have you there. That's for sure. That's an obvious thing. And I thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me about your church and your ministry and who you are in it. Um, I know that our listeners are really going to benefit from this one. Matt, you're so kind to call me. I'm really grateful, and I, I hope and trust our paths will cross again. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoper and Steve Thorngate.